0: Street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Epistemic, episode number 11, Falsifiability. Uh, I'm your host today, uh, Reed Nice Wonder, aka Cordial Curiosity. Also, have my co-host here, Anthony Magnabosco. What's up, Anthony?
0: Hello, guys.
2: How are you?
1: Hey. We also have two guests today. We have Ozzie and Science Pete. What's up, Ozzie?
2: Hi. Uh, not much. I'm just uh, relaxing after supper and looking forward to this discussion.
3: Awesome. And how's it going, Pete? It's going well. Good to be here again. Looking forward to the chat. Great awesome, yeah. So,
1: just to give a quick intro of both Pete and Ozzy, a little bit more. Pete has a PhD in molecular genetics and microbiology from Stony Brook University. He has spent his career in both academic and commercial settings to discover and develop new treatments to fight disease. It's pretty awesome. And also, Ozzy is a YouTuber and proponent. Ozzy is a YouTuber and proponent of critical thinking with a background in analytic philosophy. He makes videos and participates in online panel discussions on the subject of the great debate about religion apologetics and counter apologetics so awesome looking forward to the uh talk today
0: really excited to have you guys here
1: so what's been happening since the last show oh what have you been up to anthony
0: oh good question well uh I've been pretty busy. Uh, I've been spending the last couple weeks editing my talk from uh, when I went to Oslo, Norway. I gave a talk on street epistemology, so I've been editing that one, and it took me a long time to freaking edit it, but it finally turned out pretty good. I've uploaded it, and uh, the response seems to be pretty good. It's uh, more of a, here are the steps that you need in order to conduct street epistemology based on the things that I've learned from doing it for five years or so. And uh, had that going on. Then I did a, a panel with Seth Andrews called Tactics, and Matt Dillahunty was on it, Sarah Hader, and Coven Synopathy. And we talked about the various approaches that are available to us if we want to engage with people to have them reflect on a belief, change their mind, those types of things. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. And then right now I'm getting ready for a couple of conferences coming up. There's American Atheist coming up on April first and then before that is NanoCon in Nashville, which will be March seventeenth. And I'll be giving workshops on SE as well as some talks. I think you're going to one or both of those, aren't you, Reed? Um at least the first one, at least NanoCon. Um,
1: maybe American atheists. We'll see. But uh mm-hmm. yeah, can't wait for can't
0: wait for or it should be fun. Yeah.
3: What is NanoCon? It's not a, not about nanotechnology I'm guessing. right no. no okay,
0: so there's a group there's a skeptics group there's a skeptic group in Nashville called the Nashville Nuns, and that's where they come up with the nano, so it's Nashville Nuns. It's a shortened version of that That's and, a bit bit confusing, but
2: okay yeah, it's like a we, very tiny group <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> they're very small uh, yeah, and i I think they've I don't know how many they've had so far, but this is probably their fourth or fifth event. And they usually get several hundred people that show up. So it uh, should be pretty cool. Sweet. Um, cool. Anything else interesting? Uh, well, we're, we're kind of revamping the rules and descript- the group descriptions and the rules for the various Facebook groups. That's been taking a lot of our time over the last couple of days. So we should be able to roll something like that out pretty quickly on that. Pretty soon, I should say. We've been working on it for a couple of days. Yeah, just the growing pains of all of these groups and getting
1: a lot more people, so
0: nice. Yeah, we have almost 5,000 people, I think, in one of the groups, and just a handful of administrators and moderators. And in order to keep a group healthy, you need to have a little bit of structure. So we've kind of hit that point where it's like, okay, we need to put some rules together to kind of keep this a productive environment. Yeah, and also the the Wishful Thinking
1: short film that came out, right?
0: Yeah, about two weeks ago, a independent filmmaker Travis Brown released a film called Wishful Thinking. Uh, Peter Bagosian has a cameo in it. You have to look for it, and he was inspired by the Street Epistemology videos and the book that Bagosian wrote. And he made a little short film. And I think we, I think we uploaded that to the Street Epistemology YouTube channel. So if you haven't seen that already, you can go there. Awesome. It was pretty. Pretty good. Pretty good short film. Yeah.
1: Um, did anybody else see it? Did you see it, Pete? Oh.
0: My bad. Sorry. No. No bars. I don't know if... I don't know. Pete, did you see that or Ozzy? We've tried to promote it pretty I heavily have. on social media.
3: I have not seen it. So well. <laughs> no.
2: Nor no have I, actually. But I... I have not been sort of very active in social media lately. It's, um, it's winter camping season and I'm a winter camping enthusiast and I've been giving talks on the subject and planning trips and such, so I've been far removed from, uh, from such discussions for a while. All right. Uh, it's winter and I'm in hi- hibernation, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really absent from
3: most things. So. <laughs> it's hard to get
1: some signal in the cave. Absolutely. All right, so we can, I guess, move on to the, the main topic of today, falsifiability. Um, like, what is it? Why is it important? Want to yeah. take us off, Ozzy?
0: Or what do you want to say? Yeah, That's sure. Right. Well, um, if, I want to give a, a little background as to why we brought you guys here, because when we are doing street epistemology, oftentimes we talk about the importance of needing to test the belief that you hold. How could you be confident in something that you don't have the ability to test? And that brought up a, I've started seeing some comments on my videos and people messaging me on Twitter, basically saying, just because something can't be testable doesn't mean that you you're unjustified in believing it, which I thought was really interesting. So I thought, well, Are they looking at this from a scientific perspective or a philosophical perspective or what? Like, where are they coming from with that? Which is why we brought somebody who represents the scientific community as well as the philosophy community, and we can get into that. What I was hoping to do, I have just a short two or three minute clip where I I broached the topic of testability, and I thought I would play that just to give people a little, little bit of taste of how these things come up in a conversation before we get to breaking down whether this is a valid form of questioning because if if this is a disingenuous type of questioning, then I want to be able to address it or tweak the questions or completely abandon this idea of testing beliefs. So if that's okay with you guys, I want to go ahead and play that video. Yeah, sure. Yeah, good idea. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear it. That's what it sounds like you're almost doing with this this belief. Mm Mm-hmm. That that you don't have a way to sip it to test it. Mm-hmm. Is there any way that you can test this belief to figure out that you were mistaken on it?
4: Hmm. Let's see. Test it. Hey. I don't know. I just kind of like uh, I kind of take life as it is, one day at a time. You know, and uh, it's kind of like me. You know, I just kind of take one day at a time and. Uh, just kind of ha- handle every struggle. Like, one of the things, like... Well, hold on a second. Yeah.
0: If I had a method for you to test it, mm-hmm. and I don't... Yeah. But if I did...
4: Mm-hmm. Or
0: anybody yeah. had, had a method that said, Hey, you know, Andy, here's a method for you to test this belief to see if it's true. Mm-hmm. Would you take them up on it? Would you want to implement...
4: Yeah. I think in the sense, like, it's always good to, like, get advice, you know, because, like, I mean... I've become friends with, like, people who are I'm not talking about advice. I'm yeah. talking about definitive...
0: A definitive action that you can take mm-hmm. to basically sip the latte, so to speak. Yeah. You know, you sip the latte to figure out that it's not latte. Chai mm-hmm. latte. Somebody might have this technique to say, Hey, dude, if you do this... there's Odell. If you do this, mm-hmm. you can discover that it doesn't function in the way that you think mm-hmm. that it does. Mm-hmm. Would you be interested in... In, uh, in implementing that corrective measure?
4: Yeah, I think I would. I mean, it just really depends on like... I think I, I would look at that person, you know, and just like look at their personal life, you know? Like, how oh, are they...
0: You would be skeptical on the person giving you th- the corrective measure?
4: I would make sure that I'm receiving corrective advice. Like, okay. they have their life in order, oh. you know? Like, obviously you wouldn't get financial advice from a homeless person, right? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. It
0: depends. Like, if they, you know, what, I don't know what their background would be. Hey, Odell. Yeah. Uh... let focus on something. Yeah. Um, okay.
4: Well, I mean... Is uh, this is
0: your, your way of saying that you have no way of determining currently that the belief that you're holding in the
4: Bible is well, mistaken? Well, I mean, it does say in the Bible, you know, to test the spirits lest they be the faith, you know. And so I think in the sense, like, there is, like, a certain, there is a testing. Um,
0: well, it encourages you to test, mm-hmm. but you haven't been able to identify what you would accept as a test.
4: Yeah, I guess, like, it just depends on, like, if someone had a test, I'd be like, yeah, sure, I'd be willing to take it. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. Thank you very much.
0: So yeah, tell me what you think about that. Was that line of questioning good? Was it, was it unfair or what kind of went through your
2: mind as you heard that? Well, it didn't strike me as unfair. Um, I mean, when, I think whenever a person purports to believe something, whenever they, they take something to be true, um, and they don't have to claim to know it, 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 even if they just think that it's true, right? they just believe that it's true, um, it, one incurs a burden of justification um now as soon as you do that it behooves you as a rational epistemic agent um to have reasons for thinking uh what you take to be true is true um and the more responsible you are the greater lengths you will you will go to to try to test whether or not your belief is true but the concept of testing is, is a little it's a little fishy um um, we want to sort of take this into a discussion of falsifiability and the concept of refutability. But that's, that's a more precise notion than the notion of testing because when you test for something, you can test to see if something is true, but you can also test to see if something is false. Um, and the concept of falsification or refutability is about testing to find out if a belief or a hypothesis in science is false. It's not about trying to test and confirm or corroborate that it's true. Um, so the concept of testing I think is, um, is very important, uh, but the concept that we're sort of um, trying to zero in on tonight is, is the concept of testing to see if your beliefs are false. Is there a way to find out in principle at least whether or not your beliefs are false? But when you talk about testing um, to people who are unfamiliar with the concept of falsification or ref- refutability, When they hear testing very often it it hits their ear as how how could i know if it was true how could i confirm it Mm -hmm. right um especially conclusively establish that it's true right uh and of course that's not how science proceeds for instance science doesn't try to conclusively establish that something is true Uh, scientific theories and hypotheses no matter how well well tested are at best very well corroborated but they are never absolutely confirmed, and they're corroborated in part by uh, testing to see if um, the hypothesis will generate predictions that will turn out to be false and if if the theory or the hypothesis generates predictions and those predictions turn out to be false, we know there's something wrong with the theory there's something wrong with the hypothesis mm. um, that's a very different notion than what most people think of when they think of testing their beliefs they they think. You know i mean what we're, i mean a belief is about what you think is the case right a belief is what you think is true so consequently if you ask a person how can you test if your belief is true their their, their orientation uh, in their thinking about that is how could they establish that it's true yes their, their minds are miles away from thinking that it's false and in fact when you yeah introduce the concept of falsifiability to people in this context very often they think You're misunderstanding what it means to test. You know, um, so if they're unfamiliar with the concept of falsification and refutability, they they will very often think that you're you're introducing some weird notion of testability Mm. because it's not testing for truth.
0: Yeah, I, I cut it from this little clip that I showed, but when I asked him how could we test to see if his belief was not true, he gave three reasons why his belief is true he kept missing the, what I was asking. Uh, no, I wanna see if we can, how could we discover that it was not true? How can we defeat, I, I didn't use the word at the time, but I probably would today. How could we defeat the claim that it's actually true? What would that look like? And he really struggled with it. And I, that, it's not just him, I've seen lots of believers struggle with this. Um, also, I should say, I used to say, how could we falsify your belief? But so many people aren't used to that word that I've shifted to testing people understand tests, more or less, Uh, falsifying tends to give people the impression that I'm saying that their belief is false.
2: Right. I'm not doing that. Yeah, it carries with it that connotation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But testing, um, there's the opposite uh, pitfall, which is the one that you just described with that gentleman in that video, where you you brought up the idea of testing, and then he's trying to give you reasons for thinking that it's true. Uh, uh, Here's a way that you could ask the question that, that might avoid sort of falling into either one of those ditches, um, you could just ask, how could you find out if you were mistaken, right? What, what, what test could you, um, could you run? Mm-hmm. What question could you ask? What evidence could you do that would allow you to discover if you're wrong? I'm not saying you're wrong, but if you were wrong, mm-hmm. how would you find out,
3: right? Yeah, I would, That's I, great. I would agree with that. I think where it might appear that the question is being unfair when I don't think it is unfair by any means whatsoever, is that the the individual is having a hard time thinking of a test to falsify his claim. Because they're struggling with this notion of test, Mm -hmm. it might seem like, you know, just at face value that you're sort of painting them in a corner and almost like trying to create a gotcha moment, which you're not, but to someone, an outsider, a non se individual looking at this, they might see it in that sort of respect. And maybe the person being interviewed might feel that that's the case as well
0: well i do want the person to discover that they're believing in something that they don't have a way to figure out if it's not true because that's usually the case whether it's a prayer or a miracle or whatever um that discovery is is very useful it's very helpful it's a great way to plant the seed so that somebody thinks about their belief if they realize oh my gosh i have no way of knowing that this belief isn't true which a great question also, I think, is then how do you know that you are, haven't already seen that evidence, that that, that, uh, that defeater, if you can't describe what that might
2: be? It's a funny thing that happens when you have these discussions with people and you try to uh, introduce that concept of falsifiability or refutability. Um, you know, how, how would you know if you're mistaken or how could you falsify your belief? Very often they think that the question is irrelevant um, because they think they have already found a way to establish that it is true. Right? Now, given that I've established that it's true, <laughs> if I have done it, uh, what is the point of looking for falsification? Right? Uh, and very often, when people believe something with uh, a very high degree of conviction or confidence, um, they, are, they are satisfied that they have conclusive reasons for thinking that it's true. And once you think that you have conclusive reasons for thinking something is true, the very notion of falsification is it just seems irrelevant, completely beside the point. And a way to get around that, in my experience, is to just say, okay, well, look, if you think you've got reasons for thinking that it's true, but you can't think of a way to find out if it was wrong, um, then really how how can you know that, or how can you be so confident that you have stumbled into the truth Mm -hmm. um, if there's literally no way to find out if you are mistaken? I mean, supposing you have a belief, okay, uh, for which you have um, uh, no reason to think is false, but it is false. Wouldn't you want there to be a way to find out if it is false, yeah. right? Um, especially if the stakes are high. In the case of religious beliefs and many political beliefs, the stakes are often extremely high.
3: I'd also add though, depending on the belief and the emotional connection that that individual has to that belief, <laughs> just the notion of even considering that this is false could be almost traumatic to them. So you know, there's a huge wall and barrier that you have to penetrate there. That I think that something almost earth shattering has to occur for them to really sort of step outside their box and really consider the possibility of falsifiability of the claim. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's important also to make the distinction that even if a person is unable to come up with a way to falsify or defeat their belief it doesn't mean that the belief isn't true. The belief Mm -hmm. still could very well be true, even though I don't have a way to, to falsify it. And maybe that's the disconnect, maybe that's where people are getting confused on these SE videos, they think that we're saying that since you can't test it, that it's not true. That's not where I'm coming from. I think that the big takeaway is that my confidence in that belief should probably be not as high if I discover that I don't have a way to falsify or test or defeat this
3: belief? I want to push back uh, on that a little, though. If if you can't test it, you're saying that it could. It, there's a possibility that it could be true. I think I'm not, I don't know if I'm comfortable getting on, in line with that. I would almost just claim that we have no way of knowing if it's true or false. So to even assume any sort of position would be I guess, maybe intellectually dishonest in a sense. If you have no way to test this, if this is not falsifiable whatsoever, mm. I can't even make any sort of claim that your belief possibly could even be true. You would take false. a position, you, just, would just I, say,
0: you would just say, I don't know. I, I don't have enough information to I, believe
3: that. I have no no reason to take any position on this right now without any sort of way to test it. Yeah,
1: It's like it wouldn't have gone through a fair test. Like a fair test means it could have turned out to be, like, false. That's what a fair test means, right?
2: Yeah, I- I'm tempted to push back on, um, on what Science Pete is saying here, though, actually, um, because I-, I don't think that every belief that we have, including beliefs that we think are exquisitely rational, are testable. I think that there's certain core fundamental beliefs that all of us hold, I mean, universally hold, and even form the ground of rationality and uh, the basis of, of science that are, are simple presuppositions um, that we don't know how to falsify, right? And I'm talking about extremely basic things, right? Um, uh, you know, how do I know that I didn't come into existence 15 minutes ago, fully formed, uh, with an, a universe around me that appears older and with memories that that take me back, uh, you, know, you know, 40, 50 years? Uh, But in fact, all of those memories were were created with me immediately. I have no way of testing that hypothesis. There's nothing to suggest that it's true, not for a moment. I mean, it seems completely fatuous as a suggestion, but there's no way to test it. Every, Every piece of data you could point to is consistent with it. Art's dream argument, how do you know that you're not dreaming? And you might think, oh, well, you know, maybe there's some experience that I have when I'm awake that I could never have when I'm dreaming imagine that you have an experience like that, or you think you have an experience like that, you know. Um, let's call that experience phi. Um, when I, whenever I have an experience of phi, or whenever I feel phi, or I perceive phi, um, I know that I'm not dreaming. I know that I'm awake. Right? But even that ability to discern the experience of phi from not feeling phi is, is itself assuming right now that you're making that distinction and capable of making that distinction under a condition where you're not already dreaming. <laughs> You just dream that experience. Right? Some people often say, some, they'll say things like, well, when I'm dreaming, I never feel pain. You know, I never really feel pain. Or you'll never see a clock move in a dream or something like that. There's all kinds of weird notions that people have about dreams and how they differ from, from uh, waking life and that would allow them to detect that they are in fact awake uh, dreaming when they're in fact um, Dreaming. Uh, But as far as we can tell, any experience that you can have in life, you can have when you're dreaming. And consequently, data that points to you being awake right now could itself be the product of a dream. You could, in fact, be dreaming that. Uh, In fact, I mean, this is such a radical hypothesis. I could literally wake up right now and discover that I am not a mortal human male living in Canada. I might discover that I am a ball of glowing gas in the universe (laughs) uh, that happens to be sentient. Oh, and I might go, oh my goodness, I had the peculiar dream um, that went on for a long time, the 50-year-old man living in Canada. Um, So I don't know how I could ever test the hypothesis that I'm I'm not dreaming, because every piece of data is consistent with both my being awake and Mm -hmm. my dreaming. Every piece of data is world existing only in my mind or there being a mind-independent reality. So I think that there are some some claims, some, and I think these are universally shared assumptions that we have, that are not testable. So, I don't think that everything has to be testable. We want as many of our beliefs to be testable as possible, and we want to be as rigorous in our testing uh, as we can be. And we want to strive for falsifiability where it is possible to have a belief that is falsifiable, but I think that there are some beliefs that we that we have that are not falsifiable. Um, and that, that, I think, is an objection that a, that a theist might if we, we were to say to them, well, look, you know, your belief isn't falsifiable. That should give you pause. They could, you know, come back with, well, you know, we all have a lot of beliefs that aren't falsifiable. <laughs> but I've night, had conversations
0: um, with apologists that say exactly that, that you can't you can't falsify that you didn't exist, uh, that you've only existed since five minutes ago. Therefore, any claim that I make is justifiable because we can't. Falsify some things. There are just some things that we can't falsify. Therefore, yeah, my claim that there's a God is real. I've heard that exact argument from. Yeah, Fless. well, that,
2: that's a mistake. That's that's a mistake that people make when they, they will where, sometimes yeah, make the mistake, the mistake of, where, where, where of exactly saying, where are they going wrong?" Well, what they're doing there is they're, they're they're saying, "Ozzy, if you grant that we have beliefs that are unfalsifiable, that really deep, fundamental beliefs that that are universally shared, keeping you up at night." then surely that's a license for me to believe any old thing that's unfalsifiable. And, of course, that is a non-secretary. It does not follow that because I have to admit that, yeah, how about that? <laughs> there, there are things that I take to be true um, that I presuppose every waking m- moment uh, of the day, um, and <laughs> even when I'm dreaming. <laughs> uh, there are things that I presuppose to be true uh, that are not falsifiable, that I haven't a clue how to test. Um, uh, but that doesn't follow from that. That I can believe any old thing on insufficient evidence, um, and that any old unfalsifiable claim that I can dream up is rational um, to believe. Right? I, it, here's the way I would I would I would I would sort of uh, rebut that that objection from a from an apologist. I would say, look, it's it's true. I will concede that there are beliefs that I have, that you have, that we all have, that are unfalsifiable. We want to have as few of those as possible, presumably. And to the extent that we recognize and identify that we have unfalsifiable beliefs, um, we ought to scale back our confidence. You know, I I live every day as if the world, as if there's a mind-independent reality living in a solipsistic universe, where I'm the only mind and everything around me is actually happening in my mind, right? Where I I believe and and act as if I think the world is very old and I, I didn't come into existence fully formed with all my memories 20 minutes. Minutes ago, for instance, right? I do live uh, in accordance with this presupposition. Presupposition. I, I'm not under the misapprehension that this is something that I have tested and established, has passed a test. Every fact is consistent with this and the opposite thesis. Mm. I recognize that, and th- and that's why I don't I, I don't actually put a lot of uh, stock in it. If someone comes up with um, a solipsistic argument or an idealistic uh, argument, that is an argument in favor of idealism or solipsism or something like that, um, that argues for it. I will, I will countenance that, argument. I, will con- I will consider that argument, I will weigh that, I will not dismiss it. Um, and uh, similarly, I think if you, if you believe in a God that's unfalsifiable, you ought to take uh, into consideration um, objections against it. It's not a license to believe any old damn thing just because you grant that there are some things um, certain, what I would call, properly basic beliefs, beliefs that are universally shared um, that are unfalsifiable. So that, I mean, it's just a non-sequitur to try to use it as a license to believe mm-hmm. any old thing.
3: I hear it all the time. I, I, uh, I agree a lot with what you're saying, Ozzie. W- one question that I have in this, this topic of presuppositions, it kind of confuses me a little bit at times. Is it possible that there are presuppositions, some presuppositions are better than others?
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I think that there are, we all presuppose things all of the time. Some things we presuppose <laughs> rather stupidly and some things we presuppose um, rather out of our animal nature. Uh, I'll give you an example and think of the principle of induction, right? The principle of induction, you know, that if you know, if the sun rose in the east yesterday and set in the west and that happened the day before that and it happened the day before that that way, you come to, to induce, you come to, uh, to conclude that in the future uh, the sun will rise in the east and will set in the west right? You're just basing um, your predictions about what will come in the future on the basis of what has happened in the past, right? Um, That's what we call induction, right? Generalizing from from prior experiences. And all of science is is predicated on the use of induction. But there is an assumption, a presupposition, if you will, at the heart of induction. And that, that assumption is the following, that the future will resemble the past in some relevant respects, If you assume that, then of course it's perfectly reasonable to make generalizations and predictions about the future based on the past, right? Um, But if you were not to assume that, then you wouldn't be able to make any predictions. Um, That I think is a perfectly um, rational uh, thing to assume, Uh, but there isn't a reason to assume it. We just do assume it, and the assuming of it is part of what we, we, we say constitutes rationality, right? The use of deduction constitutes rationality. The use of responsible induction constitutes rationality. Um, uh, Trusting in the general reliability of your senses constitutes rationality. Trusting in the the general, um, not perfect, but general reliability of your memory, for instance, constitutes being a rational agent. Anyone who does not assume these things is going to be very irrational, right? They're going to act in in ways that are just disastrous and they're going to make all kinds of terrible mistakes. So, there are some assumptions that I think Um, or presuppositions that we make, that we have no rational warrant for making, but they constitute together what we call rationality. So I think rationality actually rests on a set of presuppositions that are non-arbitrary. My dog uses induction. The reason I believe that the future will resemble the past is the same reason my dog does. It's not that I concluded rationally that the future will resemble the past. I didn't learn that. I was born thinking that way, right, just as my dog was um this is part of our animal heritage our our minds are our machines that allow us to form a map of reality and there are presuppositions if you will built into that that machinery uh, built presumably by natural selection um, that allow us to, to navigate to make a mental map or mental model of the, of the reality around us so i think some presuppositions um although there's no way to rationally warrant them um, and not coincidentally, we take to be at the core of rationality, but, but other presuppositions, no matter how deep and fundamental we, we take them to be, if they're not part of our very conception of rationality, I think that we don't want to privilege them in the same way that we privilege the idea uh, that there's a mind-independent reality, the way we privilege the idea um, that, um, that there exist other minds, the way we privilege the idea that the future will resemble the past. Uh, or the concept of causality and so forth. So there's a lot of things, I think, that we we genuinely presuppose that are in a special category. These are sometimes called properly basic beliefs, as opposed to a basic belief that you just assume, but which if you were to jettison, you wouldn't in any way be irrational. For instance, I think if you believe in a god, that might be core or fundamental. It might be at the heart of your web of belief, at the network of your beliefs. It might inform and, and, uh, and, and affect everything else in your web of beliefs, Um, so that it it would would be important if if that were extricated, right? But you you can nevertheless not have that belief in God and still be a rational person, whereas if you didn't believe in um, the validity-preserving character of deduction, if you didn't believe in the principle of induction, for instance, you would not be a rational person. So, I think that there there are presuppositions, and then there are presuppositions. There are presuppositions that are properly basic, and then there are there are presuppositions that are merely basic, but not properly basic. There are, and I think the, the ones that are merely basic are the ones that we really want to have as few of. I want to have as few mere presuppositions as possible. I, if, to the extent that I have presuppositions that are unwarranted, I want them to be properly basic ones that form the core of rationality.
0: This reminds me of Hunty's t-shirt. Uh, you should create something about presuppositions, and make a t-shirt out of it like that. Um,
2: it, right, it would so,
0: be a very very verbose teacher it would be pretty verbose yeah <laughs> okay so yeah i uh, okay so i guess what i'm still struggling with maybe at some point is is there still merit in asking questions of people whether or not they have the ability to test their belief and i know that we've been to- kind of toying with this ferrari example a couple uh, recently i don't know if uh, uh, i don't know if you've seen it Ozzy. I don't know if you were around when we did that. I mean we we may have talked about it. Um it's kind of similar to the chai latte thing. I,
2: no, I, I'm fa- yeah, I'm familiar with it, yes.
0: You are. Okay. Well Pete was the originator of that. He he mentioned that at some community hangout and we started we started implementing it yeah. and we have an example here of reads that I, I'd like to I have it queued up and I can play it. Let's um yeah. jump to that.
1: Do you
4: wanna set it up, Reed?
0: Fresh from uh,
1: Yeah, sure. I this is fresh from my outing today. Uh just uh, Going out and doing SE today out in a public park. I don't actually mention the word test uh, specifically, but I I do ask how he could um, change his confidence one way or the
0: other. You'll you'll see the example, but so um, okay. yeah, this is just a Ferrari example. I'll go ahead and play it, and then give me the thumbs up, guys, if you can hear it. How about this?
1: I'll just make a claim, and just give me your sense of confidence on it say on a scale from zero to 100 that that is true
5: okay
1: um so i own a ferrari i'm
5: gonna guess 10 10 no offense
1: no fault that's fine <laughs> <So> <laughs> just
5: because you're using a gopro and not a red yeah
1: <laughs> so currently 10 percent. why'd you put it there
5: because you're using a gopro not a red and if you can afford a ferrari you can afford a red or anything else different equipment
1: uh-huh so, so that's just, just based on my setup here i'm using um
5: uh what's it called uh not the process i guess process of elimination i have no idea it's okay. something i learned in grade school but yeah there's gotcha. a for it there. if you could like
1: speak as close as you oh, can yeah, to the course, mic yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: so if i <laughs> if i hypothetically took out a keychain
5: mm-hmm.
1: with a ferrari logo on it mm-hmm. where would your confidence change at all
5: i think a little bit yeah. and you know i kind of me. have you ever seen fear and loathing yeah. Yeah. Remember that scene? Is that in Fear and Loathing? I think it was where he has the Playboy tag on his bag, uh-huh. and when he's trying to get into the race, he just sets the bag down and makes sure that the guy sees it, you know, uh-huh. and so that he kind of just automatically assumes that he's with Playboy and not some other magazine. Okay. And so I think it, it could be like one of those dealies, you know, because that sticks out in my head because I have that I've seen that movie and. Okay, so just a keychain would move you up how much? Probably to like a forty. Forty. Yeah. So or more? No, no, that's that's wrong. I'd say sixty. Sixty, at least sixty. You would
1: believe, but very
5: like a keychain or or a fob, like a fob. Oh, a fob, yeah. then yeah, like ninety percent. <laughs> yeah, that's completely different. Ninety percent. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because why do you have that? Why would Did I you have? steal someone's Ferrari?
1: I don't know. Hmm? <laughs> so it would get you to ninety percent if I just brought took, took out the, the key fob.
5: Yeah. For it. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Um. Now, oh man, there's so many other factors now, too, because <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> it's also like, I, I, like breaking down the fourth wall. Oh, sorry. Breaking down the fourth wall here. Like, uh, uh, uh-huh. you got a camera set up and stuff like that. You know, obviously, like, you're, mm-hmm. you're doing something for your podcast or whatever, and so uh, yeah. or your YouTube show. So, uh, I don't know. It could just be a big hoax. Could be. Yeah. If you were random off the street and you walked up to me and you just whipped out, your cat would just be like 110%. Yeah, this guy's got a Ferrari, because he'd had no reason to do that. No unless reason. Unless he was like trying to fuck yourself. Sorry if I shouldn't say <laughs> yeah, Unless he's like trying to hit on somebody or whatever. I don't know. Okay. Yeah.
1: So let's just think about some just random person here you meet, mm-hmm. if you walked up to them and they took out a Ferrari key fob, you would be how much confident?
5: With, you probably, I would just assume 100%, I think, just because it's Los Angeles. We're at Runyon Canyon mm-hmm. and like, you know, wealth is abound. You just assume 100%. Yeah, I think I would.
1: And by 100%, does this mean you could not be mistaken about it?
5: Um. Okay, no, I wouldn't say that. It'd be like a loose hundred. <laughs> a loose 100, I guess? Loose 100 to yeah, like yeah. 99. Yeah, like I'd be very, I'd be, I could be swayed, you know? I like to keep an open mind. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. I try.
1: So, so, if you found someone who had that key fob, mm-hmm. uh, what would it take? That would get you to 99. Mm-hmm. What would. What extra evidence would you need to lower your confidence, bel- like below 50, that uh, they don't ooh. actually have? I feel yep. like
5: opened his mouth and he just had like really scraggly, gangly brown teeth and stuff, you know, okay. like something like that. And you're like, hey man, I got a Ferrari. And I'd be like, ooh, I don't think you have a Ferrari. You don't even have teeth, you know, okay. something like that. Something so. that like uh something that showed off their their wealth in another way. Something that showed they're not as wealthy as yeah. the key yeah. fob. Would a big glaring issue. Like why you, you have horrible priorities? You're getting a Ferrari before fixing your teeth. Okay. Kind of, uh, so
1: now with the key fob and then with the teeth or yeah. some other let's just say teeth, mm-hmm. you're you're now below fifty. Yeah. So if it actually turned out they actually do own a Ferrari, what evidence would you need? To, 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 to conclu- solidify to conclu- it? Yeah, to conclude that.
5: Uh, make that guy take me for a ride. Make him take you for a ride? Take Absolutely. I would milk that every chance I got. <laughs> okay. So we're from key fob to
1: teeth to a ride. Mm-hmm. With the ride, where would your confidence be?
5: Um, probably at 99, 100. Well, I, unless I pulled out. I need to see his paperwork, I guess, would be like the ultimate, like, okay. you know, A-OK <laughs> thing. So
1: key fob to teeth. A ride and
5: paperwork, yeah, that's 100%. It get get you back to 100%. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, does that
1: gonna, mean you still cannot be mistaken about I
5: it? I it? think I wouldn't be able to be mistaken you about would, that. If I saw Seal, I would just have to trust the government on that one. But the Seal of California is valid, and okay, at, it,
1: yeah. at that point, you could not be mistaken. I don't think so. No, yeah, could it be possible all that could be true y- and they still not actually own a Ferrari?
5: Yes, but there would be a layer of like. I mean, yeah, I, I, like I said, I like to take things with a grain of salt, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be like, yeah, sure, but probably not. So deep down inside, I guess I would still, like... Yeah, if I,
1: all that happened, what would you then extra have to learn to oh t- my God. To bring you
5: below 50? Um, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, something like some guy running down the street going, Hey, that's my Ferrari! That's, that's, a, good, that's <laughs> a good example. Yeah. That's a good example. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll get, we can leave
1: it there. Okay. That was nice. All right. Hey, read, right? Thanks, yeah. Nice working, thanks, so Lars. Much. Sure, no problem. All
5: right. So you won the silver screen. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Later.
0: That was, really, so, that was good. It was like, awesome yeah? watching <laughs> you guys smile and laugh that whole time. Even you, read too. Like You were really into it, and you, you actually were there.
1: Yeah, I was trying to like play a game where whatever like end of the confidence spectrum he was at, I would just try to ask, okay, what would get you now below on the other side? (laughs) And then once he's there, I'm like, okay, now how to go back to the other side. So does that relate to like testing or falsifiability? It kind of does, I guess a little bit.
3: I think what you were successful in doing there was getting the person to push their their critical thinking faculties a little bit. You know, he went from, you know, um, 10% 10% just based on your GoPro camera of you owning a Ferrari. But then if you pulled out a key fob, oh, that was, you know, that shot it right up. You know, uh, I forgot what it was, the thing that brought him to 100% or something like that. Um, so his his threshold of evidence over the course of the conversation, even though he kept going back up to 100% after a while and coming back down, but his threshold to get up to 100 hundred, hundred, hundred 100%, increased over mm-hmm. the course of the conversation, which... Um, I don't know if he realizes that, or uh, but that, but it, there was definitely a difference in his critical thinking abilities from the beginning of the conversation to the end. One thing I would, one critique I would have made there is you did it once, but I would have hammered home or repeated the claim that I own a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it was maybe like a little past halfway where you said, okay, so how would that? You know so that would be evidence that I own a Ferrari or something like that, but I think there were points within there that you could have said, you know, how is that evidence that i that this, that this that I own the Ferrari other than that just being evidence that I have a key fob or yeah. you know?
1: I think at some point we just switched to some random person so i should I should keep it on myself that right and I should always be saying I own a Ferrari
3: right exactly
0: and then okay. this whole exercise I think is useful for then once you've established. A person's uh, i hate to say gullibility uh, their gullibility index or something like that like once you get a sense of like how willing are they t- to believe things just based on my just saying it then you shift to let's pick a belief that you have that we can investigate and then if they say karma or god or a political thing then you have this basis to go back to okay so you you are 90% confident that a god exists and and in the context of our discussion about ferraris are are you sure you're at 90 is is what would bring you up what would bring you down so that's like the you've i in my in my view i think this is like the first half of it there's a whole second half where you you've now calibrated the scale and now you shift to okay now let's pick a real belief that you hold
2: there's an interesting feature in in this um, Apart from the calibration, um, or let's put it this way, when he's sort of calibrating up and down, what that, that that gentleman was doing is he's entertaining alternate hypotheses that are consistent with the data that is presented to him. Oh, n- now it's on a keychain, it's a key fob, right? Then it would go up and down, right? Like, well, you know, why does that not bring you up to 100 when I have a key fob? Well, it's because it's possible for anybody to have borrowed somebody's car, for instance, that would have occurred to him. Or he could, he mentioned stealing, you know, maybe you stole it or something like that, right? So, and that's the point of falsifiability and testability, right? That's the point of the concept of testability understood as looking for ways to refute or looking for ways to falsify. The reason you're looking for ways to refute and falsify is because for any data that you have, there's always more than one possible interpretation or conclusion that you can draw from that data there's more than one way of interpreting the data there's mm-hmm. two, there's always two possible interpretations two possible conclusions right and and what you're doing when you're getting a person to think about falsifiability is you're saying well listen given that the, i have this data that i could construe in, in terms of this conclusion or that conclusion what other piece of data would allow me to eliminate one of these competing hypotheses right and leave me with you know one less competing hypothesis right and that's what you were doing with that, and, that and, and what was nice is that ferrari example It's kind of brilliant in a way because it's so mundane it's so non-threatening to your belief set that it's very possible for a person to self-generate other ways of interpreting the data right uh, other than it's actually your ferrari you actually own it right um mm-hmm. and, and he even gave the example of um you know, if you showed me uh you know, the paperwork you know, the, the you know, the, the owner that you got paperwork establishing the ownership, right, that you are the owner. Well he says, Well, I have to trust the government. Well, there he's understanding implicitly that even if you showed me the ownership papers, right? It would still be possible that the government is, you know, is uh, has issued some phony paperwork, right? Or you've 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 um uh, forged, forged some, some paperwork oh, wow. or something like that, right? Again, right, that whatever data you have that you think strongly um, confirms a conclusion, really all data just corroborates or is consistent with the conclusion. It doesn't establish conclusively that's the only conclusion. There's always another interpretation. And so that's the point of, of getting a person to think in terms of falsifiability is get them to look at the data, that the evidence that they think is so so conclusive and get them to say, wait, wait, isn't there another way to interpret this, right? Mm -hmm. And then how would you decide which is the better interpretation? That's what it means to say, how would you know that your belief is false? It's how would you ever discover that the interpretation that you have lent, right, is actually an incorrect interpretation and that there's another interpretation fully consistent with the data that you now think is so conclusive that would be different than the conclusion you already hold. And to make a comparison to Anthony's video here, Uh, As you mentioned,
3: when I was thinking about this experiment, the the key element here is the uh, emotional detachment to the claim. So that's why we use a a Ferrari. Mm. It's an extraordinary item, it's rare amongst the population, but the likely of the individual having an emotional attachment to it is, is very well, so it 's easier for them to conceive of alternative possibilities for mm-hmm. the, the validity of this claim that is being made so when we when Anthony played his video, he was obviously asking about the falsifiability of this deeply held belief that this individual had he couldn 't even think of anything it was just wasn 't even a, almost like a possibility uh, but you know almost immediately with the, with the Ferrari thing. He could easily just say, all right, what's your confidence in this? He said, oh, well, it's, it's 10%. And then he could walk him up and down the scale, no problem, and do all these sort of critical thinking gymnastics with the person because that emotional attachment to the claim is, 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 not, is not there. It's not um, acting as a blockade.
0: <clears throat> I think mm-hmm. it's also important to consider when you roll out the calibration exercise, uh, the Ferrari example, if you are 30 minutes into a discussion about jesus and the bible and then you go to the ferrari example a person might be less honest with you participating in that exercise because they can see where the conversation might be going they might say oh yeah i I take you on your word that you believe that you have a ferrari um so there is something to be said about performing this thing first get buy-in have a have a good discussion about evidence and what would change your mind, what would lower your confidence, what am I willing to believe based on what you're presenting to me, and then shift to that that belief if you can.
2: Yeah, I think that's very important that it would have to be done in that order because doing it in the order that you described, this correct order, you know, the Ferrari example first, get, it primes the person to think in terms of competing or alternative hypotheses that are consistent with the data um, but where, it, you know, you wouldn't own the Ferrari, right? Um, and w- once a person is sort of oriented that way, is thinking in those terms, then when you switch to a subject where they are uh, very strongly invested, yeah, uh, uh, then they, they, they already understand, they just did the exercise, they know that this is how they're now supposed to think about that one, that belief, right? Whereas if you do it the other way, it's really hard. It's, I, I used to teach critical thinking in university to undergraduate students and uh, it's very easy to teach students to understand and identify, to, to spot um, uh, fallacies, formal and informal fallacies in an argument, if it's a subject that they're not interested in. But if you try to explain to a person this is a fallacious form of reasoning with an argument that they likely already think is true, all you're doing is convincing them that this is not a real fallacy, <laughs> right? You're
4: imparting <laughs> oh, some sort of phony fallacy to them. <laughs>
0: That sounds really yeah. familiar with the backfire effect that we tend to run into. That's interesting. You know, it occurred to me that I was That's thinking, right. just yep. to kind of come full circle, I could probably be justifiable in concluding that Reed owns a Ferrari if we all recognize that we really can't prove that we didn't just start existing five minutes ago. So I think I'm justified in believing Reed's claim that he owns a Ferrari. That, I think, brings it full circle to show just how disingenuous the the typical apologetic argument is i have to see reed's teeth
3: first to really make form an opinion <laughs> you, must, you could probably couldn't hear that uh, anthony because you had some sound issues but yeah one can, of the criteria hear. for owning a flyer was uh having nice teeth apparently <laughs> that, that really, if you had, had like really bad teeth his, his confidence went way down so. <laughs> oh my gosh
1: yeah, and we're switching between these terms like defeasibility and falsifiability. Are those like the same thing? Or are there any differences between
0: those things? Good question. Yeah, I was going to ask the same thing. We got falsifiability, testability, refutability, defeasibility. Are they all synonymous? Are there subtle differences? That's Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, dude.
2: Well, I think there are connotational differences, but I mean, when they're used in this context of uh, belief testing, right, um, they're typically used... Um, interchangeably. So I I wouldn't um, split hairs over whether a person is saying a belief is defeasible or falsifiable or refutable. In fact, when I was talking earlier, I kept saying falsifiability or refutability. I wasn't trying to make a distinction between the two. I was trying to suggest that you could use the two terms interchangeably. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, in in the philosophical literature on the subject, they are often used uh, that way. Uh, Although one could try to to, um, uh, sort of do some sort of fine logic chopping there and, uh, and, and define things so precisely that they don't mean exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's good to know.
0: I, I think I would recommend that people just stick with testability because of what I mentioned before, when you say falsifiability, a lot of people get confused on that and they think that you're asserting that their belief is false. Prove me right. And that might explain why they shift to giving you all these reasons why they think it's true. So, yeah, talking about testing, and I love the Ferrari example, Uh, it's so useful. Um, Yeah, I think it's so important also when you roll it out. If you have the ability to roll it out first before you get into the topic. But, you know, a lot of people who are using SE aren't using it with strangers on the street. They're using it with family members who know exactly where your position is. So, it could be maybe a little difficult for people to roll out the Ferrari example with a loved one who knows everything about them and their position on the on the topic being discussed. Do you have any suggestions there?
3: We actually had someone do this. Uh, our friend Pine Creek, Doug, I think actually performed this on some members of his family. Oh, yeah. And um, he, I mean, they obviously know him he owns a ferrari or not because if he did and they didn't know that i think that would cause some issues but uh, uh he just uh made made the person a perfect stranger and he just said you know if a perfect stranger came up to you and mm. said uh, i own a ferrari where would you um you know well, how confident would you be in that claim so it's an easy way to get around someone knowing your personal position
0: okay so just the opposite of what you suggested for reed by keeping it on himself uh if it is somebody you know just make it a a hypothetical third-party stranger making the claim.
3: Right. I think the advantage of what, what Reed is doing, what you do, when you go and you know face-to-face with someone, that person has never met you before, and mm-hmm. you can actually use the use your your personal emotive experience to almost see if you can convince the person that yeah. this is a true claim or not.
1: Um, and it's, it's so funny when people when I say that to people, they're they're immediately just. Pretty much judging me or they're they're looking at all of my stuff they're looking at me like they're gathering they're
2: trying to get evidence. as many as
1: much evidence yeah. yeah
2: that's right they're data gathering it's data collection when, they, exactly when they do that. they doing. when they eyeball you they look you up and down mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
3: They're looking at your speech. Do you have your, any your uh, like expensive jewelry that you could wear, read, when you do this? Maybe like some gold chains or something.
0: I have a Ferrari keychain yeah. that I that I ordered. I just it, it came unassembled. I have to glue it together, so I I haven't put it together yet. But you know, I, was, I wanted to mention this one thing. It was kind of funny. Somebody was saying you have to be careful with this Ferrari example because you're ultimately appealing to statism for verification of your ownership. Is that verification, though? I mean, it could still be a mistake. It could still be a forged document. It could be an old expired document. I could have purchased something from my friend and we didn't walk down and register it yet, but technically I still own it.
3: I think the point is that it is a threshold of evidence that is extraordinarily high. An extraordinary claim requires extraordinary evidence. And in this case, to have the extraordinary claim that you own a Ferrari, one would need to produce extraordinary evidence such as a bill of sale or a title or something like that uh, to validate that claim. I
1: wonder if we did this claim. Uh, there is a Tesla Roadster floating in space. <laughs> I wonder if people know, like know about that.
3: I think that's too, too well known at this point. It's
1: too well known. Like, I would love to try that out and see if someone who does not know that is true. I
0: And like, I would suspect half the population is not aware that that's happening that that's up there. Cuz that's that's pretty extraordinary. That's a good one.
1: Okay, so I when think it comes, if you went
3: to um, you know if you went to somewhere some third world country, you know, in the Middle East or Africa or somewhere where you would have access to you know
1: I would say over half of the US population does not know that is true. I would agree with How that. Possibly.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'd agree with that, Reed. Okay, so if I understand right, then employing a discussion about testability with people who are making claims that everything happens for a reason, or I said a prayer and this this came true, or my Bible is accurate because of X, Y, and Z, that we're still on good solid footing to have a discussion about testing and defeating the conclusion that we happen to arrive at. Yep. I think so. Okay. I'd like to
1: I'd like to understand how Pete goes about seeking a falsification for his work, just
3: anecdotally. Um well it's a different sort of um, um a different sort of threshold that's set for me because uh in my research I eventually am developing something that will go into a human. Mm. And that human's life could be uh, at stake. If I uh, develop a therapy or something to treat or cure a disease and I don't uh, try to falsify every hypothesis that I have in in getting me to generate that that therapy, uh, I run the risk of generating a product that when I go to put it into a human uh, could have severe toxic effects on them and um, could potentially take their life. So the, the burden of proof is set extraordinarily high for what I do on a daily basis. Um, uh, to do otherwise uh, would have um, catastrophic uh, implications. Cool. I guess that's the, the easiest way. I mean, you know, just there's a greater burden for me to falsify the claims that I'm making, uh, which most people don't have. On a daily basis. Um, The other thing, too, that you don't really get in a sort of an SE conversation, but you do get in the scientific world, is this idea of um, uh, reproducibility. So, um, you know, it's one thing for a claim to be falsifiable and testable, but that alone is not enough. Someone else, somewhere in a different location in the world, completely different bias as you. Uh, should be able to reproduce those results exactly for Mm. it to even to be considered to have some semblance of truth to it. Um, You can repeat the experiment over and over and over again yourself, but you come with your own biases. It's not until that other individual, not just them, multiple, multiple, multiple individuals are able to to obtain the same results as you without any influence from, from you whatsoever. Um, can you say that you have a, a realistic effect, a realistic phenomenon uh, that is occurring here?
2: There's actually something interesting about what you, what you just said there, um, Pete. Um, um, reproducibility is, can actually be understood as the further application of the, of the, of the principle of refutability. Um, when you are the only person doing the experiment, even if you reproduce it in your own lab over and over and over again, there, there are other hypotheses for why you're getting the results that you, you're having. You already mentioned one, your biases. Your own interpretive biases might be affecting um, the, the the outcomes and the conclusions that you're finding, okay? Uh, we want to want to test that. We want to falsify that. Well, let's have someone do the experiment who doesn't share your, your biases. In fact, let's find someone who thinks that the hypothesis is bunk because they're committed to a different theory, for instance. Um, and let's have them do it and see if they get the same results. So that, that, that too is more, even um, um, uh, reproducibility of the findings, actually I think um, uh, uh, resolves down to more testability, more attempts at falsifiability. Another uh, interpretation for why you're getting the results in your lab that you're getting that have nothing to do with um, uh, biases might be, there's just something idiosyncratic about your lab there's just some contaminant in there that you're just unable to eliminate. It's ineliminable in your lab, perhaps. You might have a lab technician that consistently does something incorrectly, um, uh, unknown to you, uh, but as soon as uh, someone in another lab undertakes the same experiment, they go, wait a minute, we're getting different findings, right? So again, the idea that the only way to interpret the data and reach the conclusion is, is in terms of the data that I have, is by the fact that if you think about it, there's always another way of interpreting the same facts, right? Your findings can be interpreted another way, the result of your biases, as a result of your biases, as a uh, consequence of some idiosyncratic um, uh, practice or procedure or technique used in your lab, a contaminant that you're, uh, you're unaware of, right? All of these are other ways of interpreting your findings. And all of those get put to the test by having as many people uh, as possible testing it independently of you. So independent testing and reproducibility in in independent tests is just another form of bringing to bear the principle of refutability, of hypothesis testing.
3: Mm. I also want to add that uh, one thing, so I I work for um, a biotech company and before we even go to set out to do any sort of experiments we think that we might be able to come up with a new formulation of something you know rework some things the data that we base our ideas off of the the previous experiments done by other groups in the world the first thing that we'll do is try to reproduce their experiments Um, because one thing we find over and over and over again is that even if something is just published in a uh, high-impact publication, take some of your biggest scientific public uh, journals out there, Science, Nature, etc., um, they have an extremely high retraction rate as well. So, uh, you know, again if you're going to develop something that is going to be put into a human and could pot- potentially hurt them if not done correctly, you want to make sure that the data that you're obtaining, whatever the literature out there that you're seeking for inspiration, Is accurate as well so we'll go and and peer review and reproduce the work that has already been potentially peer-reviewed and reproduced previously as well as a further layer to gain a further layer of confidence
0: for the theists who might be listening or watching this they're probably asking what would you as an atheist require to defeat or refute your position on the claim of there being or not being a higher power if we could do it really briefly what what would you say? What would you say? What is your what is your defeater for your stance that there is no God?
2: Well in my case it would depend on the God that we're talking about, but I mean I can there's all kinds of defeaters uh... in, in the... If, when you're talking about the Abrahamic gods, right? I mean if we found evidence of a global flood for instance right? <laughs> that would uh, instantly um... lend very strong evidence in favor of stories in the Old Testament, um, and and the, the, the God that allegedly inspired these texts, because there's all in all this this evidence to the contrary. So this would be an extraordinary find. We should not expect to find that, right? Um, so um, another example would be uh, 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 well, there's all kinds of things. Manifest miracles that were independently observable to to uh, competent observers, right? I've given sort of um, rather extravagant examples in the past, but I don't mean these fatuously um, and sarcastically. I, I mean them very sincerely. God God could move the stars to spell out, I am Yahweh, I am that I am in every known language, right? So that every observer on earth could look up and see this, right? And if astronomers could establish that this wasn't an illusion, the stars have really moved, and they all spell this out. That, I, th- I mean, I think, you know, Christianity would, you know, or at least one of the Abrahamic faiths would, would, would stand verified as a science in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are things that, that, that could. There's all kinds of, of, of uh, miraculous, extraordinary events that could take place um, that would not just give me pause, but that would just right away have me trying to figure out which of all these denominations is the right one, because, you know, um, you know certainly this, this God exists, um, and I'd, I'd want to be on the right side of that. So it's not hard for me to think of, of defeaters for my atheism. Um, it's harder to think of the for My Atheism when we're talking about a deistic God, because so often deistic conceptions of, of, of a creator God are indistinguishable from no God whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, they don't generate predictions, um, and you, you wouldn't expect to, to find anything, right? I mean, the universe is going to look the way it looks, whether there's a deistic creator or there isn't one, which is to say that, empirically speaking, these are indistinguishable hypotheses, right? Um, so, I, but I can think—at least for certain conceptions of God—I can think of defeaters.
1: How about you, Pete? Yeah, and like the Ferrari. Go ahead, Pete. I'm sorry.
3: No, I, I would agree with the same thing. Uh, you know, it really comes down to extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, so, it, it's really an issue of, of reproducibility uh, for me. If if this if evidence for this claim could present itself in a way that there is sort of unanimous consensus, not only amongst humans because we have very fallible senses <laughs> of the world, but even if now we have uh, technology, AI, or some other form of measurement that could also validate um, the phenomenon that we're seeing with our own senses as well. And again, that is sort of unanimous across the board. Uh, that would uh, that would allow me to shift my confidence towards you know this 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 altered phenomenon as well. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty much in line with what Ozzy says. Mm. Read.
1: Yeah, like similar to what Ozzy says about the stars, but even at that point, just like the Ferrari example, that's just more data that goes in with the hypothesis. So there could be something that defeats that data, um, like maybe like trickster aliens or something. So yep. it just keeps going back and forth. We can just keep doing this, doing this thing.
3: It's mm-hmm. like an asthmatope. The line it gets really close to the axis, but it never touches. Right. <laughs> you know, right. uh, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, so there's always there's always that small amount of room for doubt.
1: Yeah, and when it gets to that point, it becomes just like a like an attitude that you kind of have to have. That you know, you're open to being. Mistaken like your your beliefs are open to revision and that's more of like an attitude. So at some point really
3: I think it's also I mean, I could speak for myself and with the rest of you But if compelling evidence did present itself that altered my position, I would be completely fine with that Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm not sure and I think with a lot of theists there's that issue that uh, you know, believing or having an opposing view to what they have now is is so almost life-changing or life-impacting that uh, it's very hard for them to just be comfortable with the notion of, you know what, if my belief changes tomorrow, I'm fine with that, and I'll, I'll move on with my life.
0: Excellent. Right. Great answers. Cool. Do we have any questions, read from the audience from last time that we wanted to address? Is the, So there's basically two types of questions with SE. There's like
1: the defeasibility tests, and then the outsider test for faith. Is the outsider test for faith, being a test, a kind of falsification as well?
0: Mm, No.
2: Yeah, I think it is. I think think it is, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, the outsider uh, test, it's kind of like, almost like repeatability in another lab. The the idea is, listen, um, if something is convincing to you, if it's genuinely, rationally compelling... I mean, maybe I'm misunderstanding what the um, what the outsider test of faith is. This is some uh, an idea put out by um, John Loftus, right? Am, I, am yeah. I mistaken? Yeah, that is correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, it, now it's been years since I first read about this, so I, m- I might be misremembering it. But you know, it, the idea is that if a uh, if a an argument and evidence in favor of a certain god or certain religion is convincing to you, um, then if it's genuinely uh, rationally compelling. Um, then, it, it, then it, it should be just as convincing to somebody else. You shouldn't have all kinds of ad hoc hypotheses for why that person doesn't find it convincing, right? Um, and uh, so the idea of sort of putting yourself in, in, in another person's shoes is asking you to sort of divest yourself of your own uh, biases and and commitments and try to look at it from that that way and see, is it still rationally uh, compelling? now. I, I might it's it's been years, so maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but that's that strikes me as um, kind of like a, an attempt at uh, reproducing the results, coming to the same conclusion on basis of the same data, um, but but from another standpoint.
0: Yeah, that's my understanding too. That at its core, the outsider test for faith is asking if you are able to be just as skeptical towards uh, your stance to the conclusions that you've arrived at as you are to the conclusions that other people make of similar deities for example and it's right. funny because I, I met a guy on the trail where I asked him that question and he said no I'm not able to be just as skeptical towards my my own claims as I am theirs he was very honest but also dishonest at the same time because that's the big the big uh, reveal I think of that conversation was that. If you're not able to look at your own beliefs just as skeptically as you would somebody from a completely different continent to believing in a completely different god, then you're you're admitting that you have a bias, and I think that's at that's at the core of the um, the outsider test for faith, which is why I was saying originally that no, I don't think that it was really related to the testing part of it. Mm. I think it more reveals yeah. uh, the underlying bias um, that you have, preventing you from being able to adequately test. Your belief. Yeah. You're
1: basically. I
2: don't know if I. I don't know if I agree with that or not. Let's please go ahead.
1: (laughs) How I think of it is, you're you're basically cloning the person, their method of, coming to this conclusion. Say like feeling, having like having a feeling. So like clone that person. Person Person A has a feeling about something and concludes A, and Person B has a feeling and concludes something B. So it's like how can you tell between A and B if they're both using the same thing?
0: Yeah, like I kind of look at o- outsider test primarily as are you capable of walking in the lab and conducting experiments? It's almost like a like a check before you are given the tools to <laughs> you know, handed tools to say okay, here's the microscope, here's here's the the claim, here's your project that you're working on. Are you able to approach this from a from an open and fair point of view.
2: Yeah, I think when people uh, hear that question, um, uh, they're honestly answering that they they have these biases. They so favor one hypothesis, and they are so um, confident that the, the any other alternative hypothesis is, is irrelevant is just can be dismissed. Um, that they think they're saying um, actually. Uh, something perfectly reasonable. They don't they don't think that they're um, uh, conceding anything bad, but they aren't necessarily conceding to a kind of rational failure uh, there. Um, there, are, there are lots of things that I have biases about um, where if you ask me, you know, can you critically evaluate that, uh, your belief? I could say, yeah, I critically evaluate my belief, but that doesn't mean that because I'm able to critically evaluate my belief, uh, I don't have biases. I mean, mm. critical thinking is something you do that doesn't uh, eliminate your biases. It just allows you to counter your biases. I have my biases, right? I have my, my intellectual uh, prejudices. I play favorites with, with certain ideas. Uh, but the, the value of critical thinking is not that it makes you dispassionate and bloodless and Spock-like, uh, uh, but rather that it allows you when when you want to, uh, to say, okay, I'm gonna take this belief to, to which I so, so firmly impassioned uh, and, and I'm gonna hold it at, at arm's length and then I'm gonna apply my critical thinking tools right if you don't have those critical thinking tools then it it doesn't matter <laughs> you can't do it You'll, you won't you won't come to any reasonable conclusions right um, and then but once you do uh, do that then maybe then that might erode your confidence and and how, how deeply wedded you are to that belief but I think when a person admits that they have a, you know a deep bias They're not at the same, that doesn't mean that they're not being or incapable of being critical thinkers on Mm -hmm. that score. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that you can have both of those. Now, I think as often as not, when they do say that, they are in fact betraying a complete bias that they they have probably never thought critically uh, of it. Uh, and, And that's why they have the bias that they do. But I think all of us have biases, even in the instances where we have thought about something um, critically, and we still think, yeah, I still think it's true, uh, and I still have a bias in favor of that. And why would I have a bias in favor of it if I can think of, you know, possible defeaters and stuff like that? Well, maybe that the thing that I believe hooks up with a whole bunch of other things that I believe. It fits in there so consistently and neatly, like a, like a like a jigsaw puzzle piece. And I have outstanding, superb, unimpeachable reasons for believing all this other stuff. That that lends indirect support to this thing, which I know is kind of dodgy, which when upon critical examination, I know it's a little iffy, but it fits the puzzle so well, I'm not prepared to to give it up because that would mean that I've done the rest of the puzzle wrong, right? So I I think it's a little, it's a little, it's hard for me to to, to conclude that if a person admits to having these kinds of biases that they're at the same time confessing um, or proving that they Uh, Are lacking medical faculties on even on that question. Mm,
3: mm. I I think the outsider test of faith is rather ineffective. It's sort of uh, a measure of the level of hubris they have towards their own belief. If they are, you know, if they think, you know, uh, they can't understand why someone would have the belief that they have and they're totally stuck in their ways, uh, trying, it's such an emotionally Uh, charged topic, they have such great emotional attachment to it that uh, the Outsider Test of Faith alone I think um, is just not going to be very effective to get them to sort of think outside their own box.
0: Well, I've used Outsider Test for Faith quite a bit, and I, I, I find it very effective for helping people think how their belief is any different. If somebody can use the exact same method and arrive at a different conclusion, how could you have any Confidence in that method that you've used. That's a great question. So it's it's almost um, I almost use it so many so much that I I feel a little somewhat disappointed in myself when I have to use it. Like uh, I really can't think of a good question, so I'm gonna have to go to outsider test for faith. It's sort of like my trusty it's my trusty little go to.
3: But do you think it actually sort of gives them pause to reflect on this? Yes. Or
0: yeah. Almost. Yeah.
3: Almost always
0: the outsider test for faith. There are some defeaters to it. Two outside we're talking about defeaters a good one is relativism everyone can have their own truth the person who believes in vishnu and allah is just as true in their belief as me with jesus that is that crushes outsider tests for faith even though it's disingenuous and there's problems with it you cannot use outsider tests for faith with somebody who thinks truth is subjective you have to first examine how they are concluding that truth is not objective and then maybe you can go back to outsider tests for faith another thing i've heard is um yes there are people who believe in allah and vishnu and jesus but ultimately it's all the same god you've just killed outsider tests for faith there in my view so it's not a perfect tool but i would say 80 percent of the time it helps a person th- uh, reflect on their belief so cool I think we've covered a lot here. Talked a lot about falsifiability, lots of good
1: examples. Um, so, please, so I think it's just time to wrap up. Uh, thanks everybody for joining. Um, Pete, can you uh, say any like, last words and give your uh, any social media you wanna give out?
3: Um, no, I'm doing this with you guys. Uh, great to see that the Ferrari experiment is is gaining uh, more steam and uh, kudos to you and Anthony to really kind of put the test, the test, the hypothesis here. <laughs> um, yeah, sure and you know, can, uh, catch me on Twitter at, at science, Peter.
1: Yeah. And if, if anybody has any feedback with the Ferrari example, how we can make it better, how we make it, um, more of an example of falsifiability or testing these beliefs, let us know, give us feedback, uh, join one of the Facebook groups and, you know, let us know or tweeted us. So cool. Um, all right, Ozzy, any last words on your social media? Uh,
2: no, uh, nothing to add to this conversation. i didn't uh, say that I thought it was a really good conversation. Um, and uh, if anyone's interested in uh, my content, uh, they can find me on YouTube. Just look like for Ozzy Ramses Ramses II. I'm also on Facebook under the same name, oh, and also on Google Plus under the same name.
1: Awesome. Thanks. And Anthony.
0: Yeah, uh have a website, AnthonyMagnabosco.com. It sounds so pretentious, but yeah, there's a link to all the different ways that you can reach out to me. <laughs> just go to anthonymagnabosco.com. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I'd love to hear from you.
1: Gotcha. And uh I'm Reed from Cordial Curiosity. Just uh just Google Cordial Curiosity, you'll find my Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube channel. So awesome. Thanks a lot, guys, for joining and uh Catch you guys next time. Thanks.
0: Street epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Boghossian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.